This is an ABC podcast. You know, queer theatre has a long history. Back in Shakespeare's day, all the actors were men, Romeo and Juliet panting over each other, both played by handsome boys. Then you've got your pantomime, famous for girls playing plucky boys and for chaps in drag dripping with doubler entendres. And since the 20th century, gay theatre has been an overtly political force, challenging prejudice and offending respectable folks with plays like Boys in the Band, Angels in America and a taste of honey. And then, of course, you've got your burlesque, your vaudeville, the drag scene, and so much more. Michael Cathcart, welcome to the stage show. So the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras has been supersized this season as it becomes Sydney World Pride. So we're having some real fun with Out and Proud Queer Theatre today. Let's welcome Australia's own Reuben Kay. Reuben's big spangly drag shows are all about music and laughter and defiance. Reuben, welcome to the program. Oh, what a pleasure to be here. So World Pride, it's kicked off. What's the vibe there in Sydney? Everything is happening. Everything is colourful. Everyone is smiling. Everyone is dripping with enthusiasm and many other things, as <laughs> pride should be. So for those who came in late, this takes place every two or three years somewhere in the world, world pride, I mean. So the first one was in Rome in 2000, when Pope John Paul II said it was an affront to the city's Christian values. Which is ridiculous, because he's one of the biggest drag queens in history. The Pope is a drag queen. Fabulous shoes, great gowns. The whole thing. Um, anyway, since then, uh, host cities have included New York and London, Madrid. Uh, anyway, now it's Australia's turn. So a lot of comedians love pushing boundaries, challenging traditional attitudes. We can hear it in the way you're working now, you know, really stir stirring <laughs> us up. And you do this, but in the most charming way. I, I sense that when you're in front of a crowd, you actually take it for granted that the audience is kind of on your side. Well, if they don't, they're not just homophobes, they're anti-Semites. So they have to be. No, I just think comedy is about pushing back on boundaries. It's about transgression. I think drag specifically is also about that. It started off as transgression and subversion. And cabaret, the art form that I work in, which is seen as sometimes a dirty word in the arts industry, is an amalgamation of all that. And it is the original punk before electric music came in because it is social commentary and it is response and pushback. But... What I really try and champion is doing that in an incredibly positive way because I think if you can harness the sense of, let's say, panic, distrust, anger that is happening in society today and allow the room that you're working in to feel that in a safe way and harness it as an outward force, if that makes sense, then the material shines brighter, it resonates deeper. So it's not the sort of pessimistic style of comedy, even though I'm dealing with incredibly dark subjects. It's meant to be uplifting. It's meant to be Hillsong without the problematic accusations. <laughs> but there's your paradox, the, the paradox where art always occurs. In this case, you're talking about a place that's risky, but also a place that's safe. Absolutely. But it has to be risky for the right people and safe for the right people. And that means it has to be safe for your audience and risky for the subjects and people you're talking about. If anything, the artist has to take the risk and the audience has to feel held by them in yeah. some way. I guess the audience is already getting a sense of what your shows are like, but there you are on stage looking fabulous in glittering costumes, singing up a storm with a live band, cracking jokes at the expense of Hillsong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, really punching down, you know. <laughs> um, and sharing good old-fashioned double entendres. I don't know why I'm spelling this out, audience. You get it already. Very showbiz, very vaudeville. That's your style. Anyway, you've got to do a number for us. We've got Shannon Whitelock there at the piano. Yes, he's not on microphone. I don't allow him to speak. He's, he's here just for his hands. <laughs> Would you like to do a number for us? What are you going to perform? Uh, I'm going to actually perform a camp little sea shanty called Sailor Boys by Charles Aznavour that he originally wrote for his daughter under the, the name of the song was Le Marin, which is The Sailors, and then Liza Minnelli stole it from her and I have snatched it away from Liza. <laughs>
boy, my parents taught me love and pride. But then I met a handsome boy who took my childhood in his stride. A golden youth, a careless whim, who once upon a summer's day persuaded me to lie with him and stole my innocence away. Sailor boys, I'll wait beside the harbor gate. I'm here in sunshine and snow. For lonely boys and eager boys, for boys with nowhere to go, I raise my arms to greet you home, to give you shelter from the wild winds of the sea. Sailor boys. Come and sail with me. In attic bedrooms high above the world of ordinary men, the golden boy and I made love. For love was all that mattered then. There in the hollows of his bed, he took my passion and my pride. And swore by heaven overhead that he would love me till he died. Sailor boys, I wait beside the harbor gate. I'm here in sunshine and snow. For lonely boys and eager boys, for boys with nowhere to go. I raise my arms to greet you home, to give you shelter from the wild winds of the sea. Sailor boys, come and sail, sail with me. He disappeared without a trace. Perhaps he ran away to sea. I should have known he couldn't face the child that grew inside of me. Is everyone following the story at this point, listening at home? It just gets very complicated here. I am now pregnant with uh, uh, someone's. Ch- I know it's unlikely that I will ever get pregnant. Obviously, not unless there's an ovary at the back of my throat. But it's my song, my show. I can have a functioning womb if I want. And now I soothe with lullabies the golden girl he'll never know. She has his bold and restless eyes, but only mine will see her grow. Sailor boys, I'll wait beside the harbor gate. I'm here in sunshine and snow. The sea sailor boys come and sail with me. Sailor boys, I'll wait beside the harbor gate. I'm here in sunshine and snow for lonely boys and eager boys, the boys with nowhere to go. I raise my arms to greet you home, to give you shelter from the wild winds of the sea. Ruben Kay, absolutely smashing Sailor Boys, written by the French-Armenian singer and songwriter Charles Aznavour, who never imagined it could be treated like that. Shannon Whitelock at the piano. Wonderful playing from Shannon there. I love what you do with that, Ruben. I mean, the, the moment you, you cross that line, he, he would love me till he died, the, you, you move into another gear, a kind of raunch that can only come out of cabaret. You can take this song and make it so dangerous. And, and dirty. And dirty. 
what are the politics of that? You know, it, 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 it so defies an attempt to kind of come up with a, a view of the world where everyone behaves nicely and politely and all the things we're supposed to endorse in, you know, the ideologies of tolerance and so on. Suddenly you're saying, now I want to be dirty. <laughs> what are the politics of that, Ruben? I think we're in an age where as drag and as queer culture moves into the mainstream, we see drag is now a huge market. A lot of money is made off drag. And sometimes that means that its edges are sanded off. Same with cabaret, same with, let's say, comedy. A lot of the sharp edges of it are sanded off. It has to be made more palatable for it to be more mainstream, for it to make money. Uh, And I have railed against that. And that's how I still do not make money. But I (laughs) am... I believe that we have to acknowledge where it came from, and it came from the gutter, it came from queer rebellion, it came from dark and dingy clubs, and that it's not that is not just an aesthetic, it is core to the art form because it frames the political viewpoint of the art form. So let's talk about you, Ruben. Please. I, 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 <laughs> Not that we haven't been doing that all along. Um, so I've seen your show that The Butch is back, uh, where you really open up about your childhood and your family history. It's an extraordinary story. D- do you mind telling us first about your dad? Sure. My dad was born in Paris as his family escaped post-war Russia. His parents, my grandparents, got married in a labour camp building railroads for Stalin because vive la romance. And they got married because if they got married in the labour camp, they got uh, bigger sleeping quarters. Isn't that cute? And so my dad was born in Paris and wanted to be an artist. And my grandparents were so supportive of that. So he, his name's Laser Crum, and he was a, a painter and sculptor. So our house was filled with art all the time. It was music, it was paints, it was clay, you know. What about your mum? So mum escaped East Berlin, was taken by her grandmother to Australia. My grandmother had a couturier, like a a clothing shop on Collins Street in Melbourne, and my mum became a filmmaker. But she was an actress before that. So if you look at Ned Kelly with Mick Jagger, the film, she's somewhere in the background of that. And mum just went, oh, I don't really like being in front of the camera, but I do like being behind it. I'm interested in that. So she went to the film school in London and now she's a filmmaker. There's a good chance that she's the best thing in that film. <laughs> That's a terrible film, isn't it? Oh, she'll be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> so all of this family history, this Eastern European Jewish history, the, the, the flight from the Nazis, the, the art, the cabaret, the filmmaking, all of that swirling around in your childhood. I know. It's at once a lot of material and a lot of pressure. But sometimes the best things are forged under pressure. He said humbly. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the pressure coming from? I just feel like when you have such a momentous story to tell and you have such a momentous amount of history behind you that you have to do it right. You have to pay service to it. And especially when you're working in an art form that originated through all of those cultures, you know, I feel like the work has to be good and important. And I want to do things with my life and with my work that resonate with me, that resonate with people and that matter. And Ruben, this serious side of you that we're experiencing now, when you're on stage, is that serious side with you? Is that what's, are you, the, is that the pilot of your little plane or is, is, is the stage an escape from all this pressure? No, I think it's a funnel um, for it. Uh, a sluice or an aqueduct, if you will. I think if you don't have an engine behind you and you're working in filth, as I do, or trading in filth, mm. let's say, then it's, it's filth for filth's sake, which I, I don't think is as powerful as being able to use, use the filth as a fulcrum or as a distraction or as a subterfuge for the underlying material, which has to then cut through and it allows for counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. Or to change the metaphor, you're turning the filth into fertiliser. Oh, stop it. I'm stealing that. Copyright <laughs> Ruben K, 2023. <laughs> so you went off to the Victorian College of the Arts, the VCA. What did you study there? Oh, I did what you do with any young gay boy who can't sit still. You push him into musical theatre. Right. And uh, I had a great time there, but I, I got the feeling very quickly that music theatre wasn't the, wasn't the art form for me because of its regimented, repetitious, disciplined nature. I don't know if you've picked it up. I don't have a lot of self-discipline. And the idea of doing the same thing 
every day or eight shows a week. It's a bit like death to me. Also, you have to trade in sunny optimism. It's true. No one's going to believe, like I was in Evita in London and no one's going to believe that I, in one scene, am an Argentinian aristocrat playing golf and in the next scene, am one of the shirtless Descamisado revolutionaries. No one's going to buy that. They're going to be like, who's that tall homosexual? <laughs> With the fabulous teeth. <laughs> I know. I know. The teeth are too good. There's a horse in Turkey that's paid the ultimate price for these. <laughs> so you don't go into musicals. Instead, you head off to Europe to do what? I moved to London first off to be closer to and part of Europe. How did that work out? So well. And <laughs> then I, I got into Evita the musical and realised real quickly, oh, this is not the right thing. And from the money that I saved from that, I kind of took some time off and explored around London and Europe. And I found it was at the crest of the burlesque revolution, right, uh, which happened around about then 2011-ish, 2012. And I saw the cabaret scene. And the cabaret scene in London wasn't like the music theatre concert, Sondheim on a stool type of cabaret that we had in Australia at that time. It was variety based and there was a host and the host, he just sang and talked shit. And I thought, oh, I can do that. That is right up my Strasse. So I sort of crafted an act. I got it 10 minutes together and a couple of songs. And I thought, you know what, if I make these songs showstoppers, then they can't use them as filler in between the acts. They've got to put them as the opening or the closing. And that's what I'm going to do. And I got one gig in London. And when I went back to Australia, the next time I said, hi, I'm Ruben. I'm straight from London and I'm quite a big deal. And they gave me a gig. And then I went back to London. Hi, I'm Ruben. I'm straight from Australia. I'm a really big deal over there. And I sort of played the two off each other until someone finally bought the shtick. Mm. I don't know how anyone could believe you were straight from Australia, but... <laughs> hey, I have a very sturdy gait and I can lower the tone of my voice if I need to. And do you have a sense of drawing on performers from the past? I mean, I, when I watch you, I think this is a tradition that goes back, 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 back. Who, who are you channeling? Who are you part of? Who are your comrades through the, through the years? That is music to my ears because frequently what I get from people going, oh, we've just never seen anything like what you do. And that always galls me because I'm thinking, what I do is the oldest thing in the book, not the oldest profession, but close to yeah. it. I'm, I'm drawing from Danny Kaye. I'm drawing from the Marx Brothers, that speed of delivery. I'm taking from Marlene Dietrich, from Kay Thomas, from Fred Astaire. And then you see it's not all antiquated. There are performers like Joey Arias in New York or Christine who travels all around. There are people like Bourgeois and Maurice, uh, even sort of Julian Clary. If we're going into the 80s, we're going into Eddie Izzard. There have always been these queer, undefinable performers who have railed against the institution in their own personal way. Yeah. I wonder whether Julian Cleary was the first gay performer to, to, to be explicitly gay. I mean, there were so many people in British comedy who were gay <laughs> men hiding in plain sight, if you know what I mean. But but Julian's the first one to get up and do jokes like, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, I'll have to suck on a fisherman's friend. I mean, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, that's that's, that's well, kind of your, your terrain too, isn't it? Oh, it, it definitely is. And he actually got in touch with me after seeing my show in Edinburgh. Um, and now... Uh, we're mates, which is an amazing thing to me to kind of find because he's so generous with his time and his brain. He's, it's it's kind of a whirlwind to me to think that I'm, you know, sitting having a, a pink lemonade across table <laughs> from one of my showbiz icons. <laughs> um, as to whether he was the first openly gay, I think possibly there's a difference between being openly gay and being openly sexual as a gay man. Oh, yeah, that's important, isn't it? Yeah. Because you can be an openly gay man, but society doesn't want to think about what you do when the lights go down or in a public park. Uh, for instance, I'm uh, the Danny LaRue fan club messaged me a bunch of times and they, they love the act in London. And they message me, oh, we love it, we love it, but Danny would not approve of the language. Which I think is hilarious because Danny LaRue was a man in a wig. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. with and his bar, the Raymond Review Bar, now has the box, which is a late night, like no holds barred, incredible venue with acts pulling things out of places and putting them in that you would never think of. 
Yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there is a lot going on in gender politics at the moment. I mean, that alphabet, LGBTQIA+, it covers such a broad spectrum of people with so many different ideologies and wants and needs, all put into this great big list of letters. I I just wonder whether there are queer groups in the mix that, yeah, that don't sit easily with what you're doing. I don't think the queer community is a monolith, and I, I think the word community is a very broad word to use for such a wide group of people and for such a wide group of people that's growing. Because if you think about it, as we all get exposed to and the advancement of the dialogue over sexual politics and gender and identity politics, there's a bunch of straight people in the world or people who formally identified as straight who go, oh, well, actually, maybe I... maybe I'm not. And maybe one day we'll find out that straight is the minority. And wouldn't that be a lovely thing? <laughs> Reuben Kay is my guest here on the stage show. So at uh, Sydney World Pride, you're the host. You're so good at being a host. You're the host of an opera Australian event called Opera Up Late. What's this all about? I think someone in programming overdid the meds. <laughs> and now I'm, I find myself making my Opera House debut on the Joan Sutherland stage. Mm. Because I'm another statuesque redhead who's taken a lot on the chin. And she had a mighty chin, didn't she? Oh, she loved it. It's what she would have wanted, I think. <laughs> Do you think? Uh, so, the, the Opera Up Late is being directed by Sean Rennie, and it is uh, a bunch of uh, just amazing artists from Opera Australia. You've got uh, Angie Hogan, Cathy DeJang, Thomas Dalton, Benjamin Rashid, and also Annie Aitken, who's sort of a music theatre uber talent uh, coming in and queering up, if you can queer up opera anymore, opera favourites. And the most important part of it is I'm hosting it and I get to play in the Opera Australia costume wardrobe. So I'm coming out in some ridiculous (laughs) outfits. Perhaps something that Dame Joan herself wore. They haven't let me touch those. Oh, what they a haven't shame. let me go within 10 feet of them. <laughs> There's a sniper trained on me at all times. Is there any time in your past when you've played with the idea of doing opera yourself? Some childhood moment when you flirted with the opera? Never singing it, but definitely acting in it. As a child, I was drawn to the drama of opera. The stakes are raised so high. The costumes are so fabulous. So as a small eight-year-old child, I remember trying to manufacture my own Carmen outfit out of my mother's skirts and filling a little plastic bag full of Ribena and then getting the family to gather around and watch my brother stab me with a butter knife so I could reenact the final scene of Carmen outside the bullfight. And then it moved on into me lip-syncing to Ophelia's mad scene and making my family shove my head in the sink. Like, it just went crazy. At the one point, I was doing Tosca on the back of the couch and watching them fling myself off onto a mattress. It was always the great deaths of these women because a lot of the time in these amazing deaths, it was them taking back control from a world that was reeling out of their grasp. It's such an amazing transformative moment in opera and I was drawn to it like a moth to a flame. My family, however... Not so much. (laughs) But I will say this. I told this story to Sean and he just went, oh, well, we've got to do it, Reuben. So let's just say I'm hiking my skirts up and sprinting up a very big stairwell for quite a dramatic moment at the close of the show. Well, as you say, opera is such a big art form. I'm sure it will survive whatever you've got in store for it. (laughs) Imagine if I'm the cause of the death of opera. And they never performed again. (laughs) Reuben Kay, it's been a joy to meet you. Thanks for coming on board. It's a pleasure to be coming anywhere. (laughs) Reuben Kay, the old ones are the best ones. Opera Up Late is on at the Joan Sutherland Theatre at the Sydney Opera House on the 23rd of February as part of Sydney World Pride. He's bringing his new show live and intimidating to Bondi Pavilion on the 22nd of Feb and then the Adelaide Fringe in March. Melbourne Comedy Festival in April and then Perth and Brisbane Comedy Festivals in May. You'll find a link to all of those details, every single one of them, on our website. I'm Michael Cathcart and I think this is the stage show. Well, we're spending all of today at Sydney's massive World Pride Festival, where the program is chock-a-block with proudly queer performing arts. 
So why does the lineup include the classic American musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? I'm just a little girl from Little Rock. We lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Till a gentleman took me out one night. And after he taught me wrong from right, we moved to the right side of the tracks. Yeah, Carol Channing, Carol Channing as Lorelei Lee in the original Broadway cast of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which premiered in 1949. In fact, that was Channing's breakthrough role. But you and I know it best from the 1953 film by Howard Hawks, a very sultry Marilyn Monroe played the seductive Lorelei Lee, and her performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend in an extravagant pink gown on a red staircase has become, well, it's become iconic, hasn't it? But how is this a queer story? The musical is being presented at Sydney's Hayes Theatre. Georgina Hobson plays Lorelei Lee. G'day. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Emily Havaya plays her bestie, Dorothy Shaw. Yes, I do. Hello. How are you? And it's directed by our old mate, Richard Carroll. G'day, Richard. Hello, old mate. <laughs> good, good to have you back. Georgina and Emily, tell us about these two friends, Lorelei and Dorothy. They set off on this voyage across the Atlantic. What, what are they up to, these two? <laughs> up to no good, to let me no tell good. you. They are two friends on the hunt. <laughs> it's really cool, actually, like playing these two roles. Um, the show is really pivotally about like the friendship between these two women, which is really major for the time. When Mm. you think about it, like the time that this was written in, these women are so forward thinking Mm. and they are so modern in their sensibilities. It's really cool to to know that this was written in a time where women were traditionally written to be these, you know, wilting flower mm. kind of types that are like needed saving. And mm. neither of these women need saving. No. They're they're out for themselves. No, like, the boys oh. need saving. I mean, these women, <laughs> Absolutely. Are, these women are sexually <laughs> voracious. <laughs> they do. And what's wonderful wonderful about playing these characters is they're two women who are after completely different things. You know, Dorothy is after uh, just a good time with whoever's going, and Lorelai is after a person who can provide her security and a future financially but neither of them judge each other for wanting different things mm. they have a they have a beautiful friendship amongst it Richard last time we met you on the program you were directing a gender flipped Oklahoma in Perth starring Emily Havea yes, as, as currently <laughs> indeed so this is in a queer context so how are you doing that what treatment are you giving to gentlemen to, to re align it or what are you doing? Yeah, so I mean with Oklahoma obviously agenda flipping one of the roles um, was a very sort of directly queer way of uh, addressing the story. With Gentlemen Fur Blondes it's much more about like honouring the sort of history of stories that queer people have responded to over the years. Obviously it's only in very recent history that you know we've had explicitly queer storylines certainly in mainstream art and so you know for decades and centuries queer people have been attracted to stories that resonate with with us in particular ways. And Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is definitely one of those. I mean, it's absolutely a sort of a a camp classic, a a queer classic, if you will. And often stories of single women who live their lives their own way are things that queer people have been attracted to because single women have had their sexuality pleased in the same way as queer people over the years. So there's that element of it. And then the cast that we've gathered, we've got like a majority queer cast and creative team and just embracing queerness in the playing style of the show as well, which is still very unusual for a queer actors who are playing straight characters to not feel like they have to sort of like put on a straight suit. So that's just been really interesting and fun in the sense of like, what does it look like when a queer community tells this story in our own way? Mm. Georgina and Emily, I wonder how the, the uh, film, let's say, would be received if it appeared for the first time now. Because I wonder whether in 2023 the gender roles feel a bit dated. You know, two sexy dames on a ship full of wolf-whistling American athletes. You know, (laughs) the girls wiggling their hips. It is kind of playing into kind of paradigms of who girls are and who boys are that we kind of don't endorse now, do we? I mean, yeah, you aren't wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But seeing the stage show in a modern context, you go, wow, this really still feels like it it, it holds up. And like... Mm. It's interesting that, like, this sounds off topic, but, like, I was watching um, the Pamela Anderson documentary about her life and just seeing the way, like, women have been vilified for so long for being in, you know, in control of their sexuality or seemingly ambitious. 
and and these two women seem to like could absolutely come under fire for like Dorothy's really openly sexual totally. and and Lorelai is really really ambitious and driven by money and mm. like that seen like a dirty trait for women to have um and so like breaking that is still I think something that we're still doing to this day mm. it's still something that women are being vilified for so I think it like in terms of the text, it still holds up for mm. me. Yeah. Anyway, let's hear the, the big moment. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Georgina, you're going to sing this one for us. Set it up for us. What else do we need to know about this number? Just paint the picture. What are we looking at? Oh, we, I mean, we're looking at a very fantastic set right now and I'm in a very sparkly dress. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you have to imagine, um, you know, obviously dripping in diamonds. We've just, she's just stormed out of a nightclub and she's been kind of disgraced by or, or let down by um, these, these two men in her life and she's just had enough. Here's Georgina Hobson with Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend with musical director Victoria Falconer at the piano. to die for love They delight in fighting duels <laughs> But I prefer a man who lives and gives expensive jewels A kiss on the hand may be quite continental but diamonds are a girl's best friend a kiss may be grand but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat men grow cold as girls grow old and we all lose our charms in the end but square cut or pear shape these Upon a tired Don Juan, some and buy and some just sigh that to make you their bride they intend. But buyers or sires, they're such goddamn liars. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. There may come a time when a lass needs a lawyer, but diamonds are a girl. But get that ice or else no dice He's your guy when stocks go high But beware when they start to descend It's then when those louses go back to their spaces Gina Hobson really killing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend with Victoria Falconer absolutely driving that piano. Thank you so much. Oh, look, have an absolute blast with this show. It's really um, so exciting to hear you talking about it. You're so lit up about it, I can tell. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we we're all it. super yeah. excited. We, we love doing it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Director Richard Carroll and performers Georgina Hobson and Emily Havaya, along with musical director Victoria Falconer. And Gentlemen Prefer Blondes plays at the Hayes Theatre in Sydney until the 18th of March. It's part of the Sydney World Pride Festival. I'm Michael Cathcart, and this is The Stage Show. Well, throughout our time at World Pride today, I feel like there's been 
well, an interesting tension between performance which celebrates how far we've come as a society and performance or art which remains rooted in protest. I mean, the whole Pride movement stemmed from queer people who were protesting against mistreatment, mistreatment at the hands of of government, of police, of religion, against mockery and discrimination in the world at large. So is Pride still synonymous with protest? Stage show producer Kim Jerick joins me. G'day, Kim. Hey, Michael. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot as we've been putting this show together. When queer arts become mainstream and we start to take hard-won rights for granted, like marriage equality, the freedom to raise a family, anti-discrimination laws, does that change the pride movement somehow? And does it change the role of queer arts? So we've already heard from Ruben Kay and the team behind Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and we got a good sense of what's driving them. But the World Pride Performing Arts Program is packed, and I wanted to get a broader sense of who these artists are, what makes their art queer, and why is that important? Uh, I was initially in a group called Sister She about 20 years ago, and Sister She was a a feminist hip-hop theatre comedy act, and I suppose I was looking out at the audience, and a lot of them were women, and a lot of them were queer, and I was going, they're hot. Um, (laughs) And I was with a man at the time who I'm still friends with, and my character came out before I did. So this is Sarah Ward. She's performed as Yana Alana in the past. At the moment, she's making work as Fat Fruit with her partner, Beck Matthews. And it was literally through her art, through performance, that she first started to identify as queer. So my character was Sheila. Her name is Sheila MC Ela. And she um, was, you know, there was a lot of similarities. You know, we were just really riffing on heightened versions of ourselves. So she was from the Sutherland Shire, pretty naive, you know, naive about feminism, naive about queerness, naive about race politics. And, you know, that really mirrored where I was at, to be honest. My character fell in love with the other character. And then, interestingly, that mirrored my growth. Yeah, yeah. And reflecting on those experiences and thinking about where you find yourself today, we're speaking to you as part of World Pride, you have work featured in World Pride, The Rainbow Tree, which you're doing with Beck uh, as Fat Fruit. And I'm wondering if it's particularly important to you that your own art is queer. I, I feel like there's this tension sometimes between whether you are a queer artist or just an artist who happens to be queer. But if we're talking about The Rainbow Tree, it's it's overtly queer. I'm, I'm wondering where that comes from and what it means to you to make that work. Yeah, I think your sexuality doesn't necessarily have to cross over into your art. But having a great conversation last night with Auntie Johnny after the opening of Blessed Union, written by Maeve Marsden, and talking a lot about queerness, uh, not just as content, not just because you're putting queer ideas on the stage, but also the idea of queering form. So I think that's what's exciting about artists who identify as queer, they really mess with form. They really mess with style. They really, because we're already breaking the rules inherently by who we are in the world. We're we're not accepting mainstream ideas of what society should look like, what we should look like. And it's really exciting to break rules in theatre. In terms of the rainbow tree, 100% that was about going, okay, so Midsummer and Art Play came to us and said, have you got any ideas for making work with children? And we were like, absolutely, we want to work with children from rainbow families and hear what they've got to say. And their songs and their stories make up this show. And so, yes, it's a a beautiful queer show. I also just want to say really quickly that for some people the word queer is is hard to hear over and over again, especially older people from our community who heard that word and then were beaten. So I just want to acknowledge when I say that word over and over again, for me it's a redefining and for me it's not just about sexuality and gender, it's about lens, it's about the way in which I am in the world, it's about community and connection and hope and moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point 
to make. And I, I think the important thing is, as you say, to, to reclaim that word so that sort of trauma is not something that, that affects the next generation. And, and speaking of, you alluded to the young people that you interviewed that inspired this work, The Rainbow Tree. Did they give you a sense of why this kind of work still matters? As I said, queerness isn't just about sexuality and gender, it's about lens. So, for example, when we're talking about rainbow families, we're talking about families that sit outside of the mainstream's idea of what a family is, and that includes single parents, that includes foster children. Family is a spectrum and we are sold a really toxic idea of what family is. So this show isn't just about saying... Rainbow families exist. We're here, we're queer, we're proud. It's about saying all families and all different types of families exist. And I think that's what's great about queer work. It's inclusive. You know what I mean? We, we are here and so are you. We see you too. Yeah. Sarah, it's been so great to talk to you about this. Thank you for your time. Oh, thanks for listening. It felt like a therapy session. <laughs> here to help. <laughs> I identify as a gay man, but I always refer to myself as queer as an artist because I feel like it covers a multitude of identities and tells you a little bit about what how that person sees the world. Queerness is like um, really about inverting any kind of expectation placed on us from society. So as an artist, I'm very much a, a queer one, sexually a gay man. <laughs> My name is Elias Jamison Brown. I'm a playwright, and for World Pride, I've just written Camp, which is based on early activists in the homosexual rights movement. My first real run-in with queer art, and I kind of cringe at how obvious this is, but it was Tony Kushner's Angels in America. I was in a production of it in my early 20s, and um, it was a huge reawakening for me because I, my upbringing was quite conservative and religious, and I went to a fundamental Christian school where queerness was just not spoken about. You know, the violence inflicted on my generation wasn't so much active hate speech, it was just the historical erasure or acknowledgement that queer people exist and then suddenly I'm in my early 20s and I was in this production playing Lewis and I had to study the role and I had to really research the AIDS crisis and I was horrified. I knew about HIV AIDS, but the subject and its connection to the queer community had been avoided at the religious school that I went to. And I didn't realise just how devastating it was. And what led on from that? What did it spark in you in terms of uh, the kind of artist you wanted to be or the kind of work you wanted to make? Yeah, well, you know, both my parents are teachers and my dad and stepmom particularly really pushed this idea that it was a noble profession to become a teacher. I became preoccupied after my early relationship with works like Angels in America with the idea that artists are also educators and that we have a really pivotal role in the world because we can get around formal education structures where queerness may not be spoken about. You know, um, so my, my work is always trying to get a main stage or mainstream audience in and I'm always hoping that it will pluck at the heartstrings of some individuals in the audience who don't realise that they're about to be spoken to through the work. Mm. And in the case of your current play, quite directly, it's called Camp, and it's about the gay rights movement in this country in the 1970s, sort of in the build-up to the first Mardi Gras, which, you know, lots of people think of as where it began, but actually so much had come before. Why is this work so vital today, particularly when we're talking in terms of a movement that was long ago and, and maybe people think has achieved its aims? Look, I think that the aim of a play like Camp is not so much going to change minds for people who suffer homophobia or internalised homophobia, but there are a lot of people who are queer-friendly who are allies, 
but who may not entirely understand how generational trauma or minority trauma continues to affect queer people. They may think that the fight is over and we should be happy that we're able to marry our same-sex partners now if we want to. Coming to see a play like Camp really illustrates the depth of trauma, sacrifice, the extent to which people had to fight for basic, very basic human rights. And so it's powerful as an empathy-generating machine, I guess. I think that I wouldn't know how to not be a queer artist. Like, I can sometimes analyse my work and be like, is this going to be accessible to a straight audience? And we did have to do passes on the script to make sure that other people would like it. But, yeah, queerness is so inherent to who I am and it's not something that I've kind of pursued as an identity. It just feels at my core. And in terms of making queer art... There's a sort of simple thing, which is that I like putting queer characters on stage, but there's also that for me, queerness is about asking big questions and being willing to ask questions you don't have the answers for. Maeve Marsden is the writer of Blessed Union, which is a new play on at Belvoir. It's a comedy about a married lesbian couple, they've got kids and they're facing divorce. It stars Maud Davey, a mainstay of Australian stage and screen, but also a passionate creator of queer work herself. I do a lot of variety and queer performance in tiny little bars mm-hmm. um, on back streets and things like that. So, you know, I really straddle a kind of jobbing actor world, you know, working in television and a film and on stage, and then I feel like my real work is this kind of exploration of queer and feminist subjectivities in little tiny spots where you can take risks and feel like you're contributing to a community. Back in the 80s, Lyndall Jones, who was a performance artist, did this series of works called The Prediction Pieces, and in one of them, it was called Winter Passion, there was lots of kissing. I had never seen two women kiss in front of me on a stage, and it was just incredibly exciting. And I remember, Maeve, we had the conversation very early in this play that it's really important to... I don't know, to, to be fully kind of authentically sexual as well as just people. You know, there's a whole yeah. thing about desexualizing lesbians and queers mm. on stage and in films because mm. that's a bit scary and a bit uncomfortable. Mm. But that's the kind of stuff that's almost the most important to see. Yeah, I remember in the rehearsal process you piped up and you were like, before we run this kiss, just from a political perspective, we've got to make it feel real and passionate. I mean, in terms of my first interaction with any kind of queer art, there's no first memory. Because I was raised by lesbian mothers, I don't have, unlike most of my community, a kind of traditional coming out or discovery narrative. And sometimes it means I feel kind of outside of the community because that's such a shared experience is discovery. Well, that's really interesting because this idea of sexuality being something that is taboo or that you're not exposed to, and then you see it on the telly or you see it on a stage and suddenly feel seen or or represented. It's an idea that we're outgrowing (laughs) at at this point, you know, and, and you're part of that generation, yet you still, with this work, are involved in making work that is unapologetically queer and telling a particular kind of queer story. And I wondered why that was important to you, that your art be queer. I don't think we have achieved equality. And I think that some of the markers of equality, and it's something that the play kind of explores some of the markers of equality like marriage equality or like corporate sponsorship of pride events to me are are, are a net negative. (laughs) Um, And so for me, that kind of thing of representation of coming out stories has always been that, 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 that on some level those stories are still playing to a normative gaze. They're still saying that the most important thing about us is the moment we realise we're queer instead of a a whole host of other experiences that happen across a queer life. And there's so much more to our lives than those moments. The thing about every liberationist philosophy or ideology is that 
neoliberal capitalism has an incredible capacity to engulf, swallow, digest and poop out liberationist ideologies as products. So now we buy Che Guevara t-shirts, Sydney World Pride has rainbow flags everywhere. Thrilled to be part of the festival. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but, but, you know, how do we resist what all of those signs of acceptance are pulling us back towards, which is normativity, mm. you know, being good little mm. units who buy and sell and... And what sort of possibilities for great change are we missing because we're doing little incremental chippings away um, at these institutions? So I grew up in country New South Wales, in Orange, and I was this queer kid in uh, public school, and I remember we all went on a school excursion to see a matinee performance of Rent, the musical, and it was the first time I'd seen queer characters represented who had complex lives and relationships, and I just remember sitting there jaw-dropped. It was, it was the first time, because I grew up really Christian, it was the first time it dawned on me that it was even possible to be queer or to, to choose to live a life authentically with your queerness. And I think it's important that it was performance that did that. It was art. It wasn't just a lecture or like an article that I read. It was the way that it kind of tapped into my inner emotional world that allowed my then brain to catch up with what I was feeling, I guess. This is Joel Bray. He's a Wiradjuri choreographer and artist, and I've caught him on the road heading to another Pride event, Gay Times in Victoria, where he's presenting Daddy, which he's also going to present at World Pride. The next big moment for me was seeing um, Australian dance theatre Bird Brain, which was this kind of late 90s remix of Swan Lake. And the way it was like subtly and quietly queer, that was the moment I was like, I want to do that. I want to be a dancer. I want to go on stage and I want to make that kind of work. Yeah, yeah. And, and tell me about the work that you make today, which has so much of your own experience tied up in it and is... Uh, intersecting with so many contemporary conversations about sexuality and about representation and, you know, about having the freedom to express oneself in one's own way. Why is it important to you to make that kind of work? Why are you energised by that work? The world has changed um, and thankfully and gratefully um, there is a lot more openness to queerness and I think the kind of the frontier that we're at at the moment um, as a society is understanding the intersections of queerness, so queerness with um, being indigenous, queerness with disability, queerness with gender. Um, so my work really looks at where my Aboriginal cultural heritage meets my queerness and that meeting point is inside my body and um, I can't be anything other than black or queer actually. Like. I wouldn't be able to make a work that wasn't black and queer, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. And that's really important for me because I want to remind everyone that queerness has been a part of that 65,000 plus years um, history on this continent. Joel Bray. He's performing his show Daddy at Carriage Works on the 23rd and 24th of February. Blessed Union, written by Maeve Marsden and starring Maud Davey, is on at Belvoir Street Theatre until the 11th of March. Elias Jamison Brown's play Camp is on at the Seymour Centre until the 4th of March. And Sarah Ward and Beck Matthews just presented The Rainbow Tree at the Darlinghurst Theatre. And there is a huge lineup of World Pride events at the Darlow this month. And that's just a taster. There is so much to see and to think about in Sydney right now, Michael. Good on you, Kim. And that's all, folks. Kim Jurek there. He produced our show, as he always does. I'm Michael Cathcart. We'll see you next time here on The Stage Show on podcast and on ABCRN. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.